So last week, Joshua was teaching on goodness. We were in Genesis chapter one, and we actually read through quite slowly the first chapter of Genesis and how God and his creation said, and it was good, and it was good, and that man was made in God's image, and it was very good. And today we move on to faithfulness. I find it necessary to just give a quick definition of faithfulness. We all hear and use the word faith. I have my faith. I'm so thankful for my faith, my faith. So I feel like we should just define it. So faithfulness is just fullness of faith. Pretty easy, right? Scripture defines faith for us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, which says faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Simply stated, faith is living by the promises of God and not our own understanding. So let's look into Jeremiah 29 as we get started here. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 14. It'll be behind me here on the uh, keynote as well. And where we're at in this section, where Jeremiah, the teenage prophet, is preaching and speaking on behalf of Yahweh, is his chosen people are getting ready to go into exile. That's where, that's where we're at. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Your Bible might read a little differently. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. Verse eight, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you have caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Last verse. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place which I have caused you to be carried away captive. This is the word of the Lord. So a few things that are going on here in this text in Jeremiah 29. Number one, we have some God claims. He has said, I'm the one who has carried you away captive. I'm the one who's carried you away to Babylon. Thus says the Lord. God says, I did that. Number two, we have some instructions, right? He says, build houses, live in them. He goes, get married, 
Have children, have grandchildren, so you may be increased there. He says, plant gardens, eat the fruit thereof. He says, seek the peace of the city. In its peace, you will have peace. Instructions. Then we have, we have some promises. He says in verse 10, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you. He says, I will bring you back from your captivity. He says, I will gather you from all the nations. I will bring you to the place from which I have caused you to be carried away captive. I couldn't think of a better place in scripture to look for God's faithfulness than to one of the women of the Bible. Amen, somebody. (laughs) Turn about 200 pages to your left to the book of Esther. Turn about 200 pages to the left of that to Esther. That's right before Job. And we'll look there for God's faithfulness. Esther is a phenomenal book. We're going to walk through it quickly today. It's, it's a book that's not like any other books. It's very historical. There's, there's no like miracles or signs or wonders or anything like that. It's arguably the only book where God's name is never mentioned. Not one time does God's name appear in the manuscript. Yet his presence, his work, and his faithfulness are all throughout. Now, I need to remind you, the Bible is not in chronological order. I know. So we've just flipped to the left in your Bible, but that doesn't mean we've gone before Jeremiah. This is happening after Jeremiah, okay? So the scene we're in with Esther is it's about 100 years after the exile. Some of the Jews have returned to the land, but some are still there. And where we are today in Esther, they are still there. And they're at the end of it where it's not in Babylonian captivity, it's actually part of the Persian Empire in that scene. So we're in exile. And this book opens up, the book of Esther, with like the greatest party you've ever seen or heard of in your life. It is incredible. But first, the four characters in Esther. There's four main characters in here. First, we have the good guys. We have Mordecai and Esther. They're the good guys. They're Jewish. Esther is an orphan. Mordecai is her uncle, and he's taken her on as his own. Then we got the bad guy. We got Haman, who is an Agagite, a descendant from the Canaanites, and he has a long-standing family history of hatred towards God's chosen people, the Jews. Then we have the king, who goes best by his Greek name, King Xerxes. He's really just a drunken schlub. He's what Leo calls a Netflix dad. He like can't make his own decisions. He's a man pleaser. He just worries on the effect of of those and others around him and not himself. Those are the four characters. So as we get into this party in chapter one and two, the king throws this massive wild party. It's 187 days, this party. It's like half a year long. Everyone is drinking and feasting and there's royalty and richness everywhere. The text says that there's actually not one goblet, not one glass that's identical. 
And towards the end of this, as he's telling all the people, do what you want, behave how you want, it's all good. He says in the last few days, he tells his servants, he says, hey, bring forth my queen. I want to have her paraded around so everybody can see how beautiful she is. And the queen with the heart of like, I'm not your trophy piece, I'm not your show dog, she says no. And so the king removes the crown from her head, kicks her out of the kingdom, and says she's no longer allowed to be in his presence. So now there's no queen. So he holds all these beauty pageants. He brings all these women from the land to like come like apply to be the queen based upon their beauty. And Esther gets part in, brought into that. And she's Jewish. And they don't know it. And she wins. She wins. So the king sets the crown on Esther's head, welcomes her into the kingdom, and now says the queen and I. This is the first of what the non-believer would call an amazing coincidence. I can't believe that happened. But what the believers would say, this is God's divine plan. You see this all throughout Esther. So Esther becomes queen. And meanwhile, Mordecai, her uncle, is living his life. He's in the city and in the town square. He's walking about, and he hears these two eunuchs of the king who have a plan that they're going to assassinate the king. When he hears of it, he tells his niece, Queen Esther, and she says, you know what? I'm going to tell the king about this in your name, and then he'll be saved, and he'll honor you. And so when I read that, I'm like, Mordecai, don't get involved. Don't be a tattletale. Don't snitch, right? But Mordecai reads his Bible. He's read Jeremiah 29. What did God say? Seek the peace of the city. In its peace, you will have peace. So he does that. Esther tells the queen. The two eunuchs are put down. The king is saved, and Mordecai finds honor in the king's name. This is good. Meanwhile, Haman, the bad guy, is being promoted, and he comes to like second in command of the king. He's in charge of all the king's splendor and his goods, his men, his servants, his eunuchs, his treasuries, his finances, all of it. All the men and the women of the land look up to Haman because he's the man. He's the number two guy but Mordecai will not bow down to him. Mordecai would not bow or pay homage to Haman. And when Haman saw that, it fills him with rage and wrath and indignation. So what does Haman do? He goes on behalf of the king because the king's just kind of schlubbing it around, not paying attention really. And he takes the king's signet ring and he sets forth an edict, a law that says all the Jews will be executed, destroyed, annihilated, put up for extinction. And he can't really decide on the day to do it, so the Bible says he casts lots. It's what you and I call he rolls the dice. It lands on this particular date that's about a year forward, and that's the date that is set forward that all Jews are going to perish. And then after they're destroyed, the edict and the law says that their goods are to be plundered. Mordecai hears this, Esther hears this, and they're heartbroken. Can you imagine? Not only you, 
but all your countrymen and women are up for extinction. Just hearing that of the, the, the children alone would break your heart. It says in the beginning of verse four, when Mordecai heard of this, that he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. There was great mourning among the Jews. How he must have felt. How Esther must have felt. So Mordecai goes to his niece, the queen, and he says this. In chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai says this to Esther. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. He says, Esther, we got to do something about this. You're the queen. We got to do something. But if you don't, God's going to get his way. Now, it says, your father's house will perish. I told you she's an orphan. Her father's already dead. That simply means her family. So whether you're in or not, God's going to get his way. The tail end of verse 14, he tells her, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is what Paul writes about in Romans of God speaking of Pharaoh. For this very purpose, I've raised you up. Now, we have another problem in addition to this is that there's all these dumb laws that are in this time of the, the Persian Jewish exile. Dumb laws then, dumb laws now. And one of the laws states that no one is allowed to go into the king's inner court without an invitation by him and him alone. And if you come in or you ask to come into the king's inner court, you're met by death. Stupid law then, stu there's stupid laws now. And Mordecai is presenting this to her. We got to do something. Look at chapter four, verse 16, Esther's response. She says, go gather all the Jews who are present in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days and three nights. Me and my maidservants will fast too. In other words, God help. Help. She says, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Do you feel the weight of that? What she's about to do to go against the king's law, not knowing when she steps in if she's going to be met with a dagger to the chest or a blade to the back of the neck. I can imagine maybe she's thinking of Jeremiah's words from Yahweh in Jeremiah 29. And when you seek me, you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. So Esther puts on her royal robes. She goes into the inner court and he says, come in, come in. He allows her to come in. He reaches out his scepter. He touches her on the shoulder and says, come in. Another instance where the non-believer says, what a crazy coincidence. And the believer says, no, God's divine plan. God's divine plan. She found favor in the sight of the king. And he says, what is it you want? She says, Let's talk over a banquet. 
I want to have a banquet. So the king is like, yes, drink, eat, spend money, banquet, let's go. Yes, of course. So she says, but a banquet just between you and me and Haman. So they come in, they have a banquet, they're eating and they're drinking. And the king asks her, he says, what is it you want? And she says, I want to have a banquet for you tomorrow. It's like a banquet inside of a banquet. You women are so smart. She doesn't come out and be like, save me. She's like, no, let's have a banquet. Let's, let's do what you do. You like to eat and to drink and be merry. And then I want to have another banquet tomorrow. So he's like, yes, more money, more drinks tomorrow. Let's go. The king goes that way drunk. Haman goes that way drunk. The text says that Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. And he saw Mordecai. Mordecai is still not bowing down to him. Won't do it. And again, the text says he's filled with indignation. So what what Haman does is he says, I'm not going to wait till that day that I've set forward to have all the Jews killed. I'm going to do it now. So he builds a 75-foot-tall gallow. A gallow is basically just what you and I see as a telephone pole. It's a straight-up piece of wood. It's 75 feet tall. It's pointed to a spike on the top, and he wants to have Mordecai impaled and hung on it. Built. Now I want to go to the king and make sure this is all good that I can do this. But I can't go into his inner court because that's a law, right? So Haman goes back into the king's palace, stays in the outer court, wanting to ask him permission for this. Meanwhile, the king is kind of sort of trying to like sleep it off and he just can't really sleep. So he has one of his servants come in and read to him what's called the Book of Records of the Chronicles. It's all these deeds that have just happened that's being read to him. And what's read to him is what Mordecai did in the past, which was to tell him that, hey, two eunuchs are going to kill you. And he's like, oh, yeah, Mordecai told me that. And he saved me from getting um, assassinated. This is great. Oh, wow. I'm going to honor Mordecai. So the king wakes up from his bedroom. He asks his servants, is anyone out in my outer court right now? He goes, actually, yeah, Haman's out there right now. You want him to come in? He's like, come in. He says, Haman, question for you uh, real quick. He goes, there's someone in the kingdom that I really want to honor. I really want to honor. So Haman, in all of his pride, is like, well, this, this, has, got to, this has got to be me. You know what I mean? And we all know what comes after pride, don't we? And the king says to Haman, he goes, I want to um, honor someone. And Haman says, you should do this. Put your royal robes on the man you want of honor. Put your crown on him. Put him on your horse. And then have one of your servants lead him around the town square, giving praise to him. The king says, that's a great idea. I want you to do that to Mordecai. (laughs) You feel the shift of the story. Haman does it because he's not in command. He's second in command. He does as the king says puts the king's robes on Mordecai, puts the crown on Mordecai, puts him on the king's horse and drags him around. (laughs) Praise to Mordecai, praise to Mordecai. So now we get to the second day and now there's the second banquet, okay? The second banquet, right? So again, just the king, just Haman. There's drinking and eating and feasting and all these good things and then The king says, so what is it that you want to ask of me, my queen Esther? And she says, here it is. She goes, the Jews have been appointed to be murdered and killed and plundered all alike. And I'm Jewish. 
the king stands up in a rage. Who would do this? He like storms out into his like garden. He's like stumbling around drunk. Who would do this? Haman is begging for his life to Esther. Begging, the king comes in and he says, kill Haman. In fact, there's a nice big 75 foot tall gallow out that somebody built, impale him on it and hang it. Haman dies at the craft of his own hand to kill Mordecai on the gallow that he built for him. And now Haman is out of the story. He dead. He gone. Now we're down to the two good guys and the king. But we still got a problem. Laws in this day, the scripture tells us, when it's set forth by the king, they are unrevocable. You, you cannot redact a law that the king has set forth, even if Haman did do it. So there's a problem with that. How are we going to get past this? So Mordecai, who's being lifted in stature, says this. I got an idea. If it pleases the king, let's do this. Give me your signet ring. Let's set forth a new edict and a new law that's not redactable. And what we'll do is we'll tell the Jews to defend themselves. And anyone who comes against them, the Jews are commanded to defend themselves. The king's like, that's great. Put it forward. Let's do it. Go ahead. Here's my ring. Do it. So they do it. And the king permits it. And it says, anyone who gathers together is to protect their lives for anyone who comes to destroy, kill, and annihilate anyone against the Jewish people. So you have a war that's been put in place, set forth by Haman, who's now dead, to kill the Jews. You have another edict that's been put in place by Mordecai, the good guy, that says, defend your life at all cost. They come together, and what do you think happens? 75,000 people who came against the Jews died. Not one Jew lost his life, and the Jews did not plunder their goods. What a coincidence, God's divine plan, God's faithfulness. So what happens at the end of this is they put forth a festival called the Feast of Purim in order to remember this. It still exists today. It still goes on today. It's going to happen in a couple of months. You can check it out. The Feast of Purim. It's a day of feasting and gladness to establish and celebrate yearly, days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, sorrow to joy, mourning to holiday, days of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. Now, we don't have time to go into this, but the Feast of Purim is a really sneak, sneak word definition of actually how they slag Haman and what the title and name means. Check it out. It's really funny. We don't have time to go into it, what the word pur means and Purim, how they got that, but it's pretty funny. So the festival is established. God's plan and his faithfulness continue. And in chapter 9, verse 29, Scripture says that Queen Esther was given full authority. Full authority. And the very last verse in this book, chapter 10, verse 3, says that Mordecai, the Jew, was second to King Xerxes and was great among the Jews and was received by the multitude. And they all lived happily ever after. That's not in the text. Do you see the work of God everywhere, yet he doesn't seem present? Incredible. Beloved, no person, principality, power, or any other created thing can void the promises of God. The promises of God that run from Adam to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to David to Jesus to you to me. This isn't the first time the Jews have been threatened with extinction. It happens all throughout history and all throughout the Bible. 
Most of us are probably more familiar with Holocaust and Auschwitz, but God's gonna get his way. God is faithful. He is trustworthy. His promises are yes and amen. So in our lives, when the deck seems stacked against us, and often it is stacked, we must remember that God is faithful. Remember Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's the evidence of things not seen. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He's known as the invisible God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. He's known as the faithful creator. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. There's an invitation for you, as there is, <clears throat> as there was for Mordecai and Esther, to live on the promises of God and not our own understanding. We, the church, we are in exile. Did you know that? We're in exile. We're not gone to the promised land yet. We live on his promises of a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more crying, no more curse, no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow. The throne of God and the lamb shall be in it. His servants, we will serve him, brought and bought by, the, by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. So now we go to the abiding part. Don't get up. Stay with me. Don't get up. Don't get up. Stay here. We're going to do what we've been doing in the last several weeks. We're going to sit in 10 minutes of meditation on this scripture. Tristan's going to put on some awesome, nice, peaceful music. There's going to be some prompts that I want you to think about behind me for 10 minutes. I got the time. I got the time. Don't worry about it. We're going to do this for 10 minutes. Here's what I want you to think about in 10 minutes. Think about the story that we've just heard in Esther. Think about the story. And what would that look like to be faithful to God? Think about that story and how we would be able to live on his promises and not our own understanding. So this is where we abide. Sit, meditate on these thoughts that are on the screen behind me, and we'll be back in 10 minutes and we'll regroup.